This is Science Drives and Wellness Steers, Season 2. I'm your host, Allie. When I was in school, the most unhelpful and frequent thing I was told was she'd do so great if she just focused. The thing I never heard was how to focus. So I've dedicated my career to helping parents and educators do better. Moving from just pay attention to let me teach you how to pay attention. Let me teach you how to harness the superpowers of your brain. I've been the clinical director and therapist for Magnificent Minds for over a decade and have been supporting teachers, parents, and therapists of neurodivergent kiddos for even longer. Professionally, I'm admittedly an eclectic mix with formal training in counseling psychology and behavioral sciences. I don't fit neatly into a box, which I guess is something I have in common with the spectacularly unique kiddos I support. I combine my love of science with my connection to the pursuit of wellness and find myself at the midpoint of behavioral science and mental health, looking through the lens of neurodiversity. I'm a hippie at heart, avoiding pseudoscience, gluten, and ableism. I'm a political advocate and a passionate writer who is not afraid to have hard conversations. I'm a sometimes all over the place, not always put together mom of three, entrepreneur, and a wife who was voted most likely to speak out of turn in just about every year of elementary school, which surprises no one who knows me. You can look up my business at magnificentminds.ca or do a full social media stalking on Instagram at magminds, on TikTok at therapymagminds, on my blog, of course in my podcast, or even sign up to receive monthly updates via my newsletter. But don't worry, spam isn't my jam. Thanks for taking a bit of time and joining my community. I look forward to going on this journey with you. When it comes to supporting the mental health of a neurodivergent person, professionals, parents, the neurodivergent folks themselves want to know, number one, where to start, and number two, why is this such a commonly overlooked aspect of care and service for the neurodivergent population who are just as likely, if not more likely, statistically speaking, to need mental health supports. The reality is that the mental health service of folks that are neurodivergent is nuanced. And in order to adequately service this population, and, and really we're looking at you know any population, but in particular a neurodivergent population, a practitioner ought to be specialized enough to show up for a neurodivergent person in a way that meets their needs and in a way that reflects, you know, what they deserve in quality of care. So much discussion about early intervention and ABA and, you know, occupational therapy and, and really all of these, you know, core components of an early intervention program leave out the mental health piece. And, you know, there are professionals who break the mold and Occupational therapists are qualified to do a good amount of support in, in the mental health realm. Um, there tends to be a pretty big gap in folks and you know professionals who are equipped and specialized enough, or at least confident enough in their skill set and knowledgeable enough to support a neurodivergent population. There are clear delineations. There is a clear delineation of roles, so to speak, in like ABA and early intervention sort of worlds or, you know, um, service delivery models. 
And part of the problem is that there's a limited training within those roles on how to incorporate mental health into the service. And specifically, you know, perhaps more importantly, there's a lack of training or resources provided in terms of teaching those who are in the early intervention or ABA realm how to not only spot signs of mental health needs or struggles and also who to refer to and how to refer out. I think part of the problem is that in the ABA world, which as you know I'm very much a part of, um, there tends to be this tendency to really just default to observable behaviors. And so if those, you know, folks who are implementing those services don't have a really clear idea of the observable signs of mental health, but also, you know, the the patterns that they should be aware of that aren't necessarily observable the same way that, you know, hitting or talking or walking are observable, I think we're missing the mark. Scope of competency is a big issue in this area as well, um, but so is interdisciplinary collaboration because you you can't you can't feasibly operate in a way that provides quality care if you are sort of operating in you know a silo or you know in your own narrow way that does not incorporate either other professionals or at the very least other stakeholders. So, um, you know, the parents, the caregivers, and, you know, ideally when it comes to kids, the teachers and, you know, the coaches and the other people who are responsible for the care and the teaching of the neurodivergent kiddo, even if they're not necessarily specifically responsible for, you know, therapy and those kinds of therapeutic goals. So again, while scope of competency is important, I think it's also equally important that we get comfortable as professionals operating in this interdisciplinary way and recognizing that there is no single formula for success and you know the road to success for our clients, in particular our ND or neurodivergent clients, really relies on our willingness to collaborate across modalities and across you know, disciplines to work alongside other professionals in a way that recognizes our own scope of competency, but also allows us to be open to receiving information and strategies from other professionals who have different you know, competencies than us. And having the strategies to then you know, become, you know, familiar with, if not trained in, the things that we don't know about, and at least, you know, be willing to have those, if not necessarily inform our clinical decision making, at least be something that is on our radar when it comes to clinical decision making. I think one of the major barriers when it comes to the training of behavior analysts and, um, this might ruffle a few feathers, but here we go. Um, one of the main challenges is that there's this tendency to focus on the observable. And while there's tremendous value in, you know, things that you can see and directly observe, I think, you know, there are a good number of behavior analysts that will hopefully agree with me as well that, you know, there are private events that, you know, and for those who are not in ABA, you know, 
worlds or who aren't familiar with the ABA speak, a private event is like a thought or, you know, something that enters your consciousness, your mind that isn't directly observable. So it's a private event um, to simplify to some extent. Um, but again, those private events or those thoughts are not directly observable. You may see my body react to my thoughts or my private events, but you can't directly observe the thoughts in my mind. Um, so for some behaviorists, I won't even say behavior analysts, because I've seen frontline behavior therapists with this mentality as well. So for some behaviorists, they take behaviorism um, really to sort of to heart in a sense, and, and they're not open to the idea that behavior management and applied behavior analysis can actually, you know, focus on or target things that are not observable. Um, you know, uh, and a little deep dive into the history of ABA will lead you to radical behaviorism, which, you know, essentially says that you need to be looking at the private events as well as the observable behavior in order to get the complete picture. And despite that being, you know, one of the foundational philosophies of ABA, it tends not to translate to the way that ABA is done in a lot of places. So um, I think in terms of what we're discussing in this episode, when we think about mental health for neurodivergent folks, we have to be aware and we have to recognize that this like core tendency of some applications of ABA is going to be, you know, counterintuitive to supporting the mental health of neurodivergent folks. And if you find yourself working with a ABA team that really is, um, you know, not leaning into that idea that private events are at least part of the equation, um, and you do feel that your kiddo or you, you know, have some mental health needs, um, and I'll be perfectly frank, I haven't met an individual yet who doesn't have some kind of mental health need, um, whether it's diagnosed or not, and um, we all have emotions and feelings. Um, and if that's the case, then you may want to at least reach out to somebody with, you know, a little bit of a more specialized approach in sort of coming to terms with the midpoint of, you know, behaviorism and, and mental health supports. But that is a separate tangent, as I do. Um, Regardless, I think to sort of loop back around, I think the idea that the focus on the observable is a little concerning, to, to put it lightly, when it comes to supporting neurodivergent folks and their mental health. I think we want to be thinking about what we consider are reliable indicators of mental health struggle. So what do I mean by that? Well, if we are going to, say, train some, you know, frontline you know, educators, behavior therapists, um, even occupational speech therapists, we're going to train parents in what are some reliable indicators of mental health struggle. So what would you look for? What are some observable things you can see that may indicate, you know, anxiety, let's say, or depression? That's valid for sure. Um, but when we're talking about an an ND or a neurodivergent population, we want to be really mindful that the observable behavior is only a component. And, you know, as I said, in in sort of giving due credit and, and, and due emphasis to the private events that sort of shape our experience as human beings, those thoughts, those we can't see. When it comes to an ND population, we're looking at a population that's prone to masking. So what does that mean? Well, masking is really the, you know, the ability to or the tendency to sort of suppress 
particular traits, sometimes autistic traits, sometimes, you know, other traits, um, in order to appear more neurotypical. And I think in an ND neurodivergent population, there is a tendency to mask. And people who get good at masking or, you know, suppressing traits may be difficult, you know, to to sort of see those observable identifiers or indicators of mental health struggle. So, you know, this is sort of in response to, you know, a therapist works with a kiddo who has considerable levels of anxiety that, you know, the parents maybe see it too. And then they seek, you know, some collaboration with the kiddo's teacher and the teacher says, well, I never see that behavior at school. I don't see any indicators of worry. Um, you know, he or she looks sort of just like her, his or her peers. Um, and I think we have to at least, you know, entertain the idea that masking or suppressing those traits could be part of why it is so easily missed in settings where they're not necessarily specifically looking for it or, you know, they're not trained in how to identify it in a neurodivergent population. Um, I will say that positive shifts are happening slowly in ABA and early intervention in terms of the incorporation of mental health supports. Um, you know, like I said, there is that tendency to acknowledge, you know, radical behaviorism, as we call it. Um, but even with the, you know, literature that supports this idea that radical behaviorism or private events are valid, in many circles of of you know ABA and of even special education, um, there is this tendency to feel that you know acknowledging private events is like kind of new age, or that like incorporation of emotion regulation or mental health strategies is like a little woo woo, for lack of a better way to describe it. Um, I think this sort of just goes back to people becoming comfortable in whatever modality or style they were trained in. And if it strays from the formula that they're familiar with, this can be a little unsettling. I think this is not strictly speaking for, you know, only ABA professionals, but I think in ABA there is a tendency to really lean heavily on systems and formulas, and in some cases with good reason. Um, you know, and there is a good amount of evidence to say that that can be quite effective, but there is also, you know, nothing replaces sound clinical judgment and no systems or formulas are going to trump, you know, just sound clinical judgment and, and training in order to make clinical decisions that meet the needs of your kids. Hey, sorry to interrupt, but did you know that you can grab resources I've created for supporting development, behavior, and mental health, and even completely downloadable training programs by heading to my website? Head to magnificentminds.ca and click Parent Corner. There you can check out downloadable resources and even register for virtual masterclasses like Parenting and Autism or Parenting and ADHD. All right, now that I'm certain you're not missing out on anything, let's hop back into this episode. Um, your clients if you're not dealing with little ones. Um, mental health support as a field is as much a science as behaviorism. While mental health professionals have to study behaviorism in many cases as part of their degree programs, behaviorists don't necessarily have to study mental health theories or even developmental psychology in many streams of education. And I will say there are a lot of different ways to become a behavior analyst um, in terms of routes for you know that education that you need in order to qualify to 
take the continuing education sort of programs that are approved by the board and then sit for the exam. Um, so there are behavior analysts that are going to come with different educational backgrounds, which is somewhat unique, I think, to, I mean, I'm, I'm sure it's not the only field, but it is quite an interesting way for a field to um, progress where, where you'll have, you know, behavior analysts that have maybe a master's of education and then others which have maybe, you know, a master's of disability studies and others that have maybe a master's of psychology. So while they are related, um, it's easy to see how, you know, depending on the master's that you have, your training can be considerably different. Um, it is worth noting that in order to sit for the exam, the board exam, and become certified as a behavior analyst, you do also have to take a course sequence that is verified by the board. So there is, I mean, there is definitely, you know, standards of, in the practice and, and there is definitely common knowledge that everyone must have in order to become certified. I think that is great. That's important. Um, but what comes before that can be slightly varied depending on the path that people take. And in a lot of ways, that's really great because it allows for behavior analysts to specialize in different areas. Um, and in a lot of ways, it's a bit problematic because it means that we don't necessarily have even playing fields and that once certified, not all professionals are going to be, you know, competent in, in all things. And it isn't necessarily, it isn't necessarily a sort of, I don't really know how to describe it. It isn't really necessarily like everyone who is, you know, certified and has graduated is automatically ready to be plopped into any role. It really is going to be, you know, your education that came before your, you know, verified course sequence that's going to inform where you end up. Um, and that's not necessarily a problem. It's just something that I think needs to be noted in terms of talking about, you know, the process of becoming board certified and becoming um, a professional really in any field. Um, I think, I think that in, when it comes to the idea that, you know, the reason I bring this up is that behavior analysts don't necessarily have to have training in developmental psychology or really psychology and mental health at all, um, which as I said, you know, in some settings, that's great. It means they have, you know, a master's of education, which means they're, you know, well suited to, you know, an educational environment. In other situations, you know, it may be a challenge because you may have, you know, sort of a gap in skills that isn't isn't even a requirement to, to practice in the field. I mean, I'll be the first to say you shouldn't be a master of everything. Um, but I do think that there's tremendous value in having to study other schools of thought, not just the school of thought that you're pursuing. Um, and so that's why I say, you know, a lot of mental health, most if not all mental health professionals are required as part of their program to study multiple different schools of thought. And then they specialize from there versus, um, you know, the... Um, the behavior analysts who oftentimes, and I won't say always, oftentimes, you know, have only studied behaviorism when it comes to, you know, the different schools of thought with respect to psychology and mental health uh, service delivery. I think one of the biggest pitfalls of all of this is the misconception that teaching self-regulation or mindfulness is sort of at its core outside of the scope of a behavior analyst. And I would say it's not, or at the very least, it doesn't have to be with the right training. Um, you know, we see in the field of, you know, mental health and, you know, applied behavior analysis, we see 
ACT emerging, which is uh, acceptance and commitment therapy. This is, you know, it, it exists as a psychotherapy and it also exists as an application of ABA. Um, it's systematic in nature as a therapeutic application, which I think checks all the boxes for behavior analysts. Um, while the big picture or that more holistic approach seems to resonate with mental health providers in that, you know, it talks about core values and the things that are a little bit more mentalistic or even, you know, private in terms of private events, in terms of thoughts and, and worries and that kind of thing. Um, you know, we're also seeing in the field a shift towards trauma-informed care, which I think is definitely something that is going to positively impact, you know, the mental health availability of service for neurodivergent folks. It's becoming more common to talk about trauma-informed care in the ABA and ASD service delivery world. Um, this is a massive shift um, from what we've been used to over the last 10 years. And while I am starting to see it, you know, in bits and pieces, it's going to take an extremely long time to gain traction. Um, I also think it is one of those things that is also sort of viewed as, you know, new age, or again, for lack of a better way to describe it, woo-woo. Um, and just as a sidebar, I have no idea what the origins of saying something is woo-woo are. Um, I'm just repeating things that I've heard. Um, I don't think that's an offensive term, but if it is, can someone shoot me a DM? Because um, this is the first time I've ever used that terminology, and I would be um, more than delighted to learn if I've said something offensive. Because um, I just realized I don't really know where that word or phrase comes from. Anyway, um, so anyway, as we're seeing, um, you know, acknowledgement of trauma and trauma-informed care, as you know, uh, an application or at least as something that informs our ability to support folks that are neurodivergent. Um, I think we are moving in the right direction in particular for folks who are ND or neurodivergent because the idea that, you know, these sort of microaggressions for lack of a better term or, you know, systemic barriers that are in place pretty universally across institutions are probably more likely than not causing trauma in some capacity is really important to adequately servicing this population when it comes to supporting mental health. Um, I think another really neat example of what people might consider opposing worlds, like for example, like mentalism or like mental health supports and ABA in coming together as sort of two possibly opposing or conflicting perspectives that come together and create like a really neat um, holistic application of service for folks that are neurodivergent uh, in terms of mental health is, you know, function-based cognitive behavior therapy. So if you've been, you know, hanging out on the podcast with me for a while, you know that I love cognitive behavior therapy. You may or may not know that I did my thesis in my master's in counseling psych. I did my thesis in function-based cognitive behavior therapy. And so function-based cognitive behavior therapy is essentially CBT, so cognitive behavior therapy, which is, you know, mental health application, um, combined with what we know about behaviorism and, and functional analysis and understanding the function um, as behaviorists understand it um, to behaviors in order to move forward with a plan for navigating, you know, intrusive thoughts, uh, worries, fears, phobias, all of those things that CBT is so excellent at supporting. Um, I think another thing that is often, you know, under discussed 
is, or, you know, maybe not even under discussed, but maybe just not even known. So nobody even really knows about it to even start talking about it. Um, is that, you know, CB, there's emerging research to support that CBT can actually be implemented with caregivers in a sort of caregiver mediated intervention. And I think this is really important because when it comes to supporting folks that are autistic specifically, I've spoken with a lot of parents and professionals who have said, well, you know, I don't know. I know you say CBT is, you know, applicable and cool and good and beneficial for an autistic person, but I, I just can't really see it. I can't really see my kid having, you know, the the ability to think abstractly enough or to I don't know, they come up with other barriers that they think could possibly impact their kiddo's ability, you know, perspective taking, these kinds of things. Um, and while sometimes that's true, I have had a ton of success with CBT and kiddos with a variety of complex diagnoses, um, in particular autism. Um, and one of the things that I usually, you know, obviously I say that to parents when they let me know they have concerns about whether it would be beneficial or they're curious, um, but I also let them know that CBT in terms of being a caregiver mediated intervention can be really awesome. So I was part of a project where we were training caregivers and um, not just caregivers, but also frontline workers in CBT as a way for them to support their clients who were neurodivergent and who were experiencing um, psychosis. So essentially what we did was we taught these frontline workers um, and or caregivers, depending on the situation, how to implement you know, strategies from CBT, um, from, you know, psychoeducation to, you know, assessment of needs to, you know, role play, behavior change, all of those components of CBT, um, how to implement them specifically with, you know, the, the clients that they were supporting while they were experiencing psychosis or leading up to them experiencing psychosis. And what it really does is it gives frontline workers and also caregivers a framework for responding to, you know, some, some, big behaviors or big challenges as they were. Um, it also gives them sort of a formula for, you know, making sense of some of the things that they're seeing and working with their clients or their kiddos through some of these bigger and more challenging symptoms or things that they're experiencing, not necessarily symptoms, but behaviors. Um, I think the value of CBT, in my opinion, comes from the fact that you can learn about your brain and your thoughts and your symptoms and your behaviors before you try to change them. I think there's a lot of, you know, a lot of the beef that people have with ABA is that there is this perceived tendency to blindly change behavior without understanding it. And while I think that might be a superficial understanding of ABA, I think at the root, what people are saying is that you can't simply, you know, while you can, in theory, simply manipulate antecedents and consequences to change a behavior, you're missing the mark if you're not also thinking about what they mean and not just strictly speaking from a function-based perspective, while that is important, but also from an adaptive, you know, perp uh, an adaptive sort of standpoint with respect to what, um, what that means for how it's a coping mechanism or how it's a, you know, aspect of, of mental health needs that are existing for that individual. Um, the one thing that I always tell families of neurodivergent kids or, you know, whether or not they have mental health needs is that learning about your child's brain and how it's wired, what makes them tick is going to go an extremely long way when it comes to best supporting them. When it comes to neurodivergent folks, this means that you need to have a plan and be able to measure, you know, measure the outcome of your plan as a way that, you know, assess progress when it comes to 
working through the need for, you know, emotion regulation, self-awareness, coping mechanisms, and those kinds of things. Um, for example, you might say something like, you know, my goal is to teach my child to label his emotions, and this will be achieved when I see him or her spontaneously label at least three emotions without priming or pre-teaching. Um, so that's an example, right? But at the end of the day, what you need to be mindful of is that you, number one, have a plan, and number two, have a way to measure progress, okay? So you want to go back to data. So I'm never going to forget my roots. I still like my data. Um, and even when I'm delivering mental health supports, I'm always, you know, looking back at data and letting data guide me. Um, well, I may have a bit of a, you know, less rigid or more flexible way of looking at data than, you know, some other behavioral professionals. Um, at the end of the day, data guides progress, and that's period. You know, you, you need that in order to confirm. Otherwise, without data, you're really just going on a hunch. Um, and while a hunch can get you, you know, from here to there, it's not going to get you all the way to the end goal. Um, so having a plan and having a way to you know, measure your progress at the end of the day when it comes to supporting mental health. The second thing you need to know when it comes to working with a neurodivergent kid with respect to supporting their mental health is, okay, now you have a plan and you have a goal that outlines how you're going to measure progress. Now you need to know how to teach your kid. So this is where knowing their brain and how their brain is wired and how it interprets information is going to be vital to being able to support their mental health. You want to be looking at evidence-based strategies for instruction, chunking, shaping, antecedent strategies, and you're using these strategies to, to tackle the goal, whatever that goal is that you're articulating at the beginning of you know, the process. So here are some things that I want you to remember when it comes to working on mental health supports with your neurodivergent kiddo. kiddo. The other thing I want to note is all of this is going to be totally valid for working with a non-neurodivergent kiddo as well. You're just going to implement it in a way that meets your kid's needs, regardless of whether they are neurodivergent. But I think having this plan and being able to, you know, have strategies that will be um, definitely effective for a neurodivergent population and also effective for a neurotypical population is going to be extremely beneficial for you, as opposed to going in with strategies that you know for sure will work in a neurotypical population, but you're not sure will work in a neurodivergent population. Um, I think it's pretty safe to say as well that any strategy when it comes to learning that will work with a neurodivergent kid will work with some neurotypical kids as well. It will just depend on, you know, their, their learner profile, their needs, their, you know, preferences for, um, you know, how information is presented and their strengths. Um, all right. Let's get into it. So the first thing, uh, when it comes to teaching, you know, your kiddo about emotions, about coping mechanisms, mental health supports, here's what you want to do. So concrete examples are really important. Okay. Emotions are relative and honestly, they're abstract as well. So you want to make your emotions concrete, but there's a couple different ways you can make emotions a little more concrete and you can never get them to a point of like, you know, completely reduced to, you know, black and white. They're, they're never going to be that concrete. Um, but you can take them from this like sort of floating idea to something a little more tangible. So the two strategies that I usually use for doing this are either assigning colors or assigning numbers. And sometimes depending on the profile of the kiddo, if they can handle something a bit more complex, I might even do both. So if you're assigning colors, then you might be using, let's say, a few colors, three to five, depending on your kiddo's, you know, level and need for complexity. You'd be looking at like, say, red. Red emotions might be your peak emotions. Um, you know, yellow. Yellow might be your moderate emotions. And green might be like your baseline, your, your regular state. Um, some red or peak emotions might be like anger, rage, or extreme, you know, any extreme emotion versus your yellow, which might be, you know, worry, a little bit of fear, sillies, those kinds of things. And I mean, obviously, sillies are not 
categorically, like usually an emotion. But I think with respect to our kiddos, we want to be able to provide examples um, that are going to be meaningful for them. And I think a lot of the time with my clients, I have used sillies as a, you know, yellow or a moderate emotion and they identify with it right away. Um, I also think it provides a sense, a bit of lightheartedness. And I, I think you want to be careful that while you are classifying different emotions into sort of categories, that you're not inadvertently painting a picture that any of them are bad. Um, that's not the case. They're all fine. All emotions are totally fine. Red is red because it's a bright color and not because it's a bad color or it's associated with no. Um, and green is green because it's a cool color and, you know, it's, it's a baseline and not because it's associated with yes. Um, Okay, so that's the first one is, is possibly assigning colors. That can be a good way to make it a little more concrete. Uh, the second is going to be obviously assigning numbers, as I said. So in this case, you could be looking at a similar kind of classification system where you have, let's say, from either 1 to 3 or 1 to 5. You could even go up 1 to 10, depending on, you know, how old your kiddo is and how many emotions they know and how complex their feelings are. And you have them, you know, essentially categorize their, their, all the various feelings, some of the ones that they may have, some of the ones they've never experienced but that they know about, into these different, you know, um, classifications. So basically a hierarchy where one would be, you know, your baseline and, and where 10 would be your peak emotions or let's say five is your peak emotions if you do a one to five scale. Um, for an earlier learner, even like a preschool kiddo, you might just do, you know, one to three where three is your peak emotion and, and one is your, you know, baseline or your regular so that's the first thing. You're going to take your, your emotions and take them from abstract and make them a little more concrete. It can be really helpful for just kind of bringing it down to basics, figuring out where your kids are, and then identifying any gaps in those sort of starter skills that are going to be really important for them to move forward. Once you know, and again, you are using, you know, you're using a, a measure of progress to say whether or not they've mastered this or they've, you know, totally become fluent in these concepts. Um, once you feel like they have and you have some data to support that, like, for example, you've asked them three times and every time they've gotten it right, whatever it is that are your metrics, you want to move on to teaching awareness. So once they have an idea of what the possible emotions are and what you know they look like in terms of categorization, then you want to move on to level two or step two, which is going to be awareness. So in this step, you might, you know, have them sort emojis into categories. Um, you know, you might have them sort scenes like uh, text scenes, like you know, Billy dropped his ice cream at whatever you know the store or at the park, and how do you th you know he's feeling? I don't know. He's crying. And then you have them sort that into whatever level of emotion that might be or what color that might be. Um, you know, and another option would be labeling emotions that you see in books, like in the natural environment as you're reading. Oh, you know what? You know, play detective a little. What What do you think he could be feeling or what do you think? What does his face tell you? What are the clues that, you know, in the environment that based on what he's saying? All of these different ways that we sort of figure out how people are feeling. Um, you know, you want them to be identifying it in TV as they're watching because that can often be very concrete in TV, especially in children's shows. They'll often be very explicit about communicating how they're feeling. That can be a really good opportunity to practice, you know, connecting those dots and, you know, in themselves and in you as well with respect to awareness. So in certain situations, well, how are you feeling and what level are you at right now and, and those things. And with you, the way you would do it 
you know, as the grown up is you would model it, you know, model the emotion like in a normal sort of natural way. And then you would identify it yourself, you would label it. And then, you know, you would talk to them about it and just create that, you know, second layer of awareness. So we move from understanding what the emotions look like in theory to, to identifying what they look like, you know, in person, in practice, in a variety of, you know, settings and environments. For pre-verbal kiddos or non-vocal kiddos, you just want to lean on receptive language at this level. So, you know, which one is happy? Which one is sad? Hmm, you know, which one do you think is feeling whatever? Happy, mad, um, angry, worried, um, you know, those kinds of things. You could also have different emotions in front of you on cards and you could say, hmm, you know, in this story, the piggy said whatever, you know, which one is he feeling? And then you're gesturing to the different emotion cards or you know levels depending on how you've introduced these concepts and you allow them to receptively um, identify which they think it is and in that case when I'm talking about receptive identification I'm talking about nonverbal identification so they would be pointing or gesturing or indicating in some other way. The other thing that I think can be really helpful is once you've achieved awareness then that's when you move on to you move on to coping skills. So we know now that our kiddos are have sort of that concrete knowledge of what they are in theory, and then we know that they can demonstrate, you know, awareness of what it looks like actively or in practice. The next thing is that we need to teach them how to, once they've identified an emotion, they have to sort of connect it with a coping mechanism. And the the reason that that let you know those levels are really important with respect to one, two, three of an escalation continuum or your colors or some way of categorizing your emotions at that initial step is because once you move on to having to assign coping mechanisms, it can make it a lot easier for them to figure out, okay, well in my green feelings or my green emotions, these are some coping skills that are really effective for keeping me at green. You know, or at my level two feelings, these are some coping mechanisms. So the first step is going to be telling them what coping mechanisms are and teaching them how to do them. You're going to practice them with them and they can be anything from going from a walk for a walk to, you know, doing yoga, to asking for a hug, to singing a silly song, um, you know, doing some exercise, whatever it is based on your child and what, you know, what they need and what they want and what, you know, grounds them. And then from there, you're going to, you know, you've, you've practiced with them and you're going to talk to them about coping mechanisms and why we need coping mechanisms. And I really love the, you know, Dan Siegel's hand model of the brain. If you're not familiar with it, it's, it's brilliant. It really is just a literal hand model. Use your hand to make a model of the brain and you explain to your kids that when you are escalating, you flip your lid. That's the analogy that they use. And when you do that, you sort of raise your palm. It's really difficult to explain on a podcast, but if you look it up on YouTube, you'll see it. And it's totally brilliant because it tells your kids, it teaches your kids through a really visual um, analogy and a visual model why coping mechanisms are really important with respect to maintaining mental health um, and, you know, maintaining sort of a, a, a sense of calm and what to do when you start to escalate and you know you feel out of control you can always go back to these coping mechanisms that are extremely helpful for you so there's a lot more I could talk about with respect to supporting neurodivergent folks through you know the, their mental health needs but I will stop there and I will finish this episode I'll finish this episode into part two and I will let you know when that drops if you have questions please find me on Instagram and I would be happy to answer 
thanks for listening to another episode of Science Drives Wellness Steers. It's been amazing hanging out and I am so grateful for your willingness to let me in. If you like this episode, don't forget to leave a rating and share, share, share. Until next time, stay well, stay grounded, and keep letting science drive your habits while you let the pursuit of wellness and balance steer you in the right direction.